This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER7. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Pacific Rim, the new Guillermo del Toro monster robot battling movie. Yeah. Uh, joining me in the studio is Forrest Wickman, a Slate contributor. Hey, Slate. Hey, Slate. <laughs> hey. hey, Slate, representative hey, of Slate. Hey, co-Slate. <laughs> hey, Dana. signifier of an entire magazine. Um, so we saw five minutes of this movie together last night because I had yeah. missed mm-hmm. the beginning of the previous screening. So I just sat through the very beginning with you and then and then dashed out. So I have no idea how you, you took it overall. Good, bad? I loved it. I will probably go see it again. I thought it was probably the best blockbuster I've seen since like Inception or or Avatar, you know, largely because most of, we've we've talked about a bunch of uh, different blockbusters, and it's always like Iron Man three, The Avengers, Star Trek, and the Dark, you know, it's a lot of sequels and right, yeah. And this is this is the only original on idea so far this summer, right? I mean, of the big tent poles, has there been another that's I'm not based on anything? I'm pretty sure that that's right. I, I I mean, the last one I can even think of is Super Eight. But that is another sort of even Super Eight is like it's sort of like this in that it's a, a sort of homage to to other monster movies that the director loved growing up. Um, so there's a limit to this movie's originality, but it really makes it fresh, um, which I loved it for. You know, as a Del Toro, if you're coming to this not as a blockbuster fan, as but as a Del Toro fan, uh, it's not Pan's Labyrinth. I think his uh, non Hollywood movies are generally better than his Hollywood movies, but I, I would still say it's among his best and probably the best of his but Hollywood movies. if you're movies. coming as a Hellboy fan, his, yeah. his two Hellboy movies, right? I mean, I, I feel like I it's, think... it's in that vein, except at a larger scale. Right. And in fact, scale is probably the first thing we should talk about yes, when talking yeah. about Pacific Rim. It's already evident in the posters and the trailers that, you know, we've got a lot of big robots and big monsters and big superheroes out there every summer, but these guys are big, right? I mean, the scale yeah. is basically 25-story buildings, right? right? So it is in the... In the category of, you know, Godzilla or one of the great Japanese monster movies in terms of how much they tower over the cities they destroy. Yeah, absolutely. And the movie has a lot of fun with that. It could totally get wasted if they just, like, stayed on the perspective of the monsters and the robots. But they do some fun jump jumping back and forth between, like, the sort of ant's eye view and the monster's eye view that is really fun. So you get, you know, one second uh, a giant... Jaeger, that's the name of the robots, you know, hitting a monster with an aircraft carrier. And then, I don't know if this is the same shot, but, like, the monster hits a building. And in the building, like, one of those um, marble, those, like, marble swinger things. Right. I'm, gonna, those I'm sort like, of, the, the, like, you know, Zen toys desk. that people have yeah. on their desk. Yeah. It just, like, triggers that. And yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a fun lot of little, little funny jokes. Scale like that. jokes like that, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, okay. Let's set, let's set up the, uh, the the world that this movie takes place in, which is pretty complicated. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of fantasy world building. I sort of actually wish there was more because that was really my favorite part of the movie, which is Del right. Toro's imagination about you know the future and how how this this whole giant robot monster battle would work. So how, we don't know quite how far in the future we are, right? But it's not far. It's we're a decade in or so. the 2020s, I think. I did a little math and we're like somewhere around 2022. Right. And so the apocalyptic event that has happened, which is sort of two bizarre great things at once, is right. that creatures have come not from outer space, but from within the earth. Right. right? Under but, the ocean. Under the ocean, but also a through a portal from another that has dimension. has been there 
for a very long time since the dinosaurs. We later learned the right, dinosaurs, the dinosaurs were, like were the first emissaries. That was a very That's, silly part but of this movie, it. but I love the way. idea that the scientists, one of the you know great faux science expository moments, is explaining that the dinosaurs, yeah, were precursors, yeah. kind of yeah. testing the ground for these this future race of monsters. Yeah. So they've come through a portal from another dimension through the breach, which is this big hole in the earth under the right. Pacific Ocean, and essentially for the last decade or so, they've been terrorizing all the cities around the Pacific rim, which right. also made me laugh because it made me imagine people on the Atlantic coast just kind of kicking back yeah, <laughs> and watching yeah. the whole thing. So instead of seeing New York get destroyed, which it seems like we see in every superhero mm-hmm. movie, we most of the time are in Hong Kong in this movie or yeah, Alaska. It, it, in the sort of exposition at the beginning, it starts with the first monster shows up at the Golden Gate Bridge. It goes straight for a landmark, of course. Um, but yeah, most of the movie takes place in Hong Kong. And so... In this future, it's actually, we're sort of in the second stage of the battle against the, the, mm. the monsters, right? The idea of the first stage is that mankind as a, as a unit, right, as an international unit, because the UN seems to be in control of things, yeah. which is another bizarre thing about this movie's future, right? It's like, it's all international. Um, that These huge robots called Jaegers around the size of the monsters have been constructed, operated by a person inside to, uh, to fight the monsters. Right. But it's soon discovered that... Controlling these huge robots as a kind of a proxy inside. Basically, you are hooked up to you know a bunch of sensors, and you move in certain ways, and the giant robot around you moves in the same ways. But it's too much for one person. The neural the load neural will be load. fatal. Yeah. And so they have to be controlled by two people, one for each hemisphere of the robot, I think? That's, that's how it's explained, although uh, the exact mechanics of it are a little vague because it's not as if you have, you know, while one person ostensibly represents the left hem- hemisphere, it doesn't seem like they only control the right arm and the right leg. Or right. It's probably like that. That, like the brain that way, right? The idea is that like the two people together piloting the robot, the co-pilot, the, right. the, the pilot pair constitute a single brain. And that gives rise to, I think, the, the nicest conceptual thing in the movie that I also wish had been explored more, which is the neural drift. Yeah. And this idea that your your brain has to be in perfect sync with the, the co-pilot. That's the most difficult part of mm-hmm. piloting it, which is why a lot of the most famous pilot pairs that we meet are related to each other. There's a father-son. There's two brothers. One of right. them becomes the main character of the movie. There's two Russians that share haircuts. Yeah, there's two really, really <laughs> That's great, the only scary, bleach-blonde Russians. Think. Su- I think they're supposed to be siblings because okay. they have the same last name. Maybe they're husband and wife. And then there's the wife. triplets. And then there's, yeah, it's Chinese triplets who have a three-armed robot that they control. So that's all established very quickly. Or it has two arms, I think. It has two sets of arms. Right. Rather than three sets of arms. Because two people equals one set of arms. And so I guess the idea is that three people, therefore, can only add one extra set of arms. <laughs> It's not well, as F. You've thought Otherwise, this way the neural load would clearly be too much. <laughs> so in the pre-credit sequence, we meet our hero, sort of our nominal hero, though he's actually kind of a cipher and one of the least yeah. interesting characters in the movie. Yeah. Um, his name is Raleigh Beckett. Raleigh. And he's played by Charlie Hunnam from TV's Sons of Anarchy. He was mm-hmm. not a familiar actor to me. Yeah. Um, and he's one half of this famous brother team, right? So in the very beginning, we see him and his macho brother operating a Jaeger in kind of the early glory days of the of the Jaeger Wars. Right. Um, then they make a bad decision and disobey the orders of their superior, played by, by Idris Elba, mm-hmm. uh, in battle. And as a result, his brother dies. Yeah. Right? And so this is the trauma that begins the movie and strands him on the beach in this kind of great, this, the poster scene, right, of this, this huge robot kneeling on a beach with this tiny little man. Yeah, a beach in Alaska, I guess. He sort of drags himself single-handedly all the way there and right. has PTSD, so he goes to work as a construction worker. because so On this the wall is, of life. Right. 
Is that what it's called? The Wall of Life is, this, is, is the new uh, strategy for fighting the Jaeger. So the idea yeah. is we're just going to build this giant wall. They won't be able to get past. Of course, they immediately, you know, it's like an Oreo cookie to them. They yeah. turn their way right through it. But, yeah, so at the beginning, he's sort of in exile, not unlike uh, Superman at the beginning of the mm-hmm. Man of Steel movie this summer, right? He's been traumatized, and so he's off doing some manly construction work to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, rebuild his soul. Um, meanwhile, back in Hong Kong, Right. The Jaeger program, I believe, has been decommissioned or the U.N. is trying to phase it out. Right. So basically what has happened is that the monsters have, you know, for a while they began winning the war against the Kaiju, which is what the monsters are called. And but then the monsters just keep getting bigger and coming out more often. So they start losing. And that's when they are like, okay, this isn't working. We need to try the wall. And they phase out. They begin to phase out the Jaeger program. But I guess... Uh, Idris Elba's character, whose name is Stryker or something? No, no, he has what the best it? name. Stacker. Stacker Pentecost. Stacker Pentecost. Uh, he just, you know, takes the whole program and, and whisks it off to, to Hong Kong to, to set up And there. essentially kind of turns it into a resistance movement, right? He's right. sort of like, we're going to keep on doing it as a bunch of ragtag... Mm-hmm. Rebellion, you know, whatever. We're gonna we're gonna mount the last the last stand of the Jaegers, whether and, the UN wants us to or not. Right. Um, and then, so let's go through that team because there's all these characters. I think are kind of great. I, what I like about this movie is is that all the small characters yeah. are, are pretty interesting. Actually, most of these characters aren't even that small. We're about to mention yeah. they're they're pretty major. So um, the woman who eventually becomes the co-pilot of. Charlie Hunnam's character, right, played right. by Rinko Kikuchi, who I remember from Babel. I love that actress. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. I'm really happy to see her back again. She's also in the Brothers Bloom, which she has. I, I don't know. She, I, I remember liking her in that as well. Oh, I couldn't stand that movie, but yeah, I like yeah. I like her and everything. Um, so she is a Japanese woman who's lost her entire family to the kaiju mm-hmm. when she was a kid. We see this in a flashback during a neural drift session where she's bonding bonding brains with her co-pilot. Yeah, that's something we should make. So in addition to needing, uh, you know, how, how each pilot has to sort of mind meld with their co-pilot and have an intimate bond with them, they also can be haunted by their past and, like, have all these memories come back and then sort of go down the rabbit hole as as it's uh, described. Don't go down the rabbit hole. Don't chase the, Don't she's chase chasing the rabbit. the rabbit. Yeah. There's a lot of, so in this movie, there's a lot of really silly mythology that's explained in, in, in I think, like a pretty elegant Oh, but way. can I just say like the I love the it. Rabbit, my the my neural, favorite the thing is the, is the trippy sequences oh, of yeah. people going into. I mean, silly pit. in a good way. I mean, I'm not bashing it for that. No, I, I actually good. I love those scenes. I, they remind me of the end of 2001. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of trippy psychedelic sequence. The yeah. idea that kind of going inside your brain is just as exciting an adventure as fighting a monster. Beyond I wish the there infinite. had been more of that. Um, so, so she becomes his partner. And mm-hmm. sort of, there's sort of a romantic thing between them, although that's not a major part yeah, of the movie. Yeah, drifting for them seems to be almost sexual. Yeah, go with the drift. It's like in Avatar where they plug in their tails together or something. (laughs) There's a similar thing going on here. So that's one pair. We've talked about the other pilot pairs. Oh, then the scientists are also very important characters in this movie because, as you can tell from our attempt at a plot description, there's all kinds of crazy science to be explored. Yeah. Um, And I like the science characters, although the Charlie Day character had this voice that just grated on my nerves. Grating, yeah, it's a little obnoxious. I think it's meant to be. I mean, the broad comic Mm -hmm. relief even is kind of part of this movies, I think, bow to old monster movies. Right? And I think also he's maybe supposed to be a, a character for kids. He almost, he was like almost the Jar Jar Banks of this movie for me. Um, but I think a lot of kids will probably like him. He's the character that if you love monsters that you get to sympathize with because yeah. he not only respects their power, he clearly, like, so monsters and Jaegers have become action figures and stuff. 
Um, and he has that same sort of – a part of him just knows this is cool. That's true. And even though – yeah, even though I found that performance a little bit too high-strung and mm-hmm. grating, yeah. I do love his character's curiosity. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it gives – there, there's an excuse for all the science explanation because he's just so passionate right. about the monsters right. and all the monster parts. And I guess no monster has ever been – Captured alive, obviously they're yeah. they're killed, but their organs are kept and kept alive in vats, basically to yeah. be to be uh, to be tested. And so he's obsessed with finding a kaiju brain that he can study. And he at one point attempts neural drift with a kaiju right. brain. Another of my Which favorite was scenes. Nuts, yeah. And uh, then there's another science science character played by Byrne Gorman, who's more like the math nerd. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of mention something else I love about the science scenes, and I think this is also just Guillermo del Toro's weird passion, is that there's this kind of steampunk element to the design that you'll see here and there. And there's this moment in the lab, you know, that's full of all these cool vats full of monster brains yeah. and monster parts, where... I think it is the scene where he's neurally drifting, and in the background you see this bellows, like an old-fashioned okay. wooden bellows, kind of like taped right. to something. And there's just kind of a sense that you know they're throwing it together from from old parts that could be you know back from the 19th century or something. It was kind of great. Yeah, Ron uh, Perlman's costuming reminded me a little bit of that too, where he has like I don't know these very odd sort of steampunky sunglasses and these gold shoes. So he's another character. He's um. Uh, eventually, uh, the scientist played by Charlie Day needs to get a, another brain so th- to drift with a kaiju again. And so he discovers that there's this black market for kaiju parts. And so that's how he meets um, the Ron Perlman character, whose name is Hannibal Chow or something. After his favorite character in history and his yeah. second favorite Chinese, Chinese restaurant, restaurant in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. We should mention, too, that Ron Perlman great. is completely a muse for Guillermo del Toro. I think he's been yeah. in every single one of his movies. And, of course, he was Hellboy Going in the Going back Hellboy to Kronos, yeah. Yeah, so so they're old buddies. And I wish there was more Ron Perlman. You can never get enough Ron Perlman. Since Did we're you spoiling, stay around should... uh, after the Yes, yes, yes. The there's, a, okay. there's an Easter egg with Ron Perlman. People should know. They should stick around for at least part of the very long credit sequence to see that. What about Ron Perlman's fate? And I was you sort of it, sad. Should we, he... should we spoil what it is? I mean, it's not... What, if you missed it and you thought Ron Perlman died, he, you know, uses his special butterfly knife thing or switchblade. I don't know exactly what it is to to carve his way out of the Out of the monster, monster that we thought had eaten, him, had eaten him. Right. Um, is there anything else we want to say about character design, about the way the monsters look? I mean, just tell me the things that kind of left you buzzing from this movie. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. So, well, we should definitely talk about the design of the monsters because that's, I mean, famously, that's one of, there was a whole New Yorker profile that was very long just about how much Del Toro loves creatures and creature design and the creature design in this movie is great. I mean, that's a, consistently a, a, a difficult issue that the creatures, when you finally show them, can be disappointing. That's why Super 8 held it F for so long. There's the whole Jaws idea of just don't show the monster. But Del Toro just loves to design monsters so elaborate. Do you remember that plant monster in one of the Hellboy movies? Yeah, that yeah, and so Hellboy 2. I think it's Hellboy 2. It's really great. And, and yeah, in this movie... So you, he gets to show the monsters for a long time, and you get to. I loved how you, they're just kept being new dimensions of the monster, where like their face would open up, and there'd be another face inside it, and sort of alien style. Or at first, you might think, oh, this sort of looks like a hammerhead shark, but then it would turn around, and its tail is more like an ankylosaurus or right. something. Or the moment when one can fly out of the blue, yeah. you, you had no idea it could fly. It also, all of them seem to share in common that they have this blue fluorescent kind of blood, right. which looked really, really great on the screen. But what did you think of the 3D in general? I thought it was pretty unnecessary and a little bit heavy Oh, I, so I like 3D when it comes to these movies that are creating a different world for you to get 
immersed in. And I, so I thought I really liked it. I'm glad I saw it in 3D. And I, I would rec- you know, recommend it if you liked seeing Avatar in 3D. This isn't quite on that level. I think I, maybe I saw a bad idea. projection. There was just bad projection in my screening or something. But yeah, yeah. I could tell it was it trying to be. do Avatar side or I didn't have a great position, but I think mm-hmm. also, honestly, that it was just, you know, it was an IMAX 3D screening. There's a lot of projection to get in order. I think there was just something messed up about it. But like Avatar, it uses depth of screen a lot with um, kind of floating particles because mm-hmm. there's a lot of underwater scenes, right? These creatures yeah. aren't always underwater, but there's a great underwater fight at the end. And, uh, and, and, and or when they're in the air, there's sort of smoke or mm-hmm. floating dust particles. So there is a definite sense of depth to the screen that's, that's really neat. And there are a lot of action sequences in this movie, maybe a few too many for me. Like I said, I would have rather had some more trippy neural drifting or, or, or yeah. other stuff or world building sort of. But, you know, if you are Though nine years old bored. and you like... No, no, you don't get bored. They're really nicely done. The monsters are cool. And mm-hmm. if you are a kid who likes to watch monsters beat up on robots, and this is basically a, a dream movie. But I wanted to yeah. hear what you thought of how the action sequences looked. I mean, just because there have been so many criticisms of the summer action movie sequence that just uses a lot of quick cuts and smash zooms and just right. essentially tries to distract the audience's attention from the fact that the action makes no sense. Yeah, this movie also tries to uh, sort of make it feel like there's always a real camera there, even when basically you're just seeing a bunch of stuff that was created on a computer. And I thought it does it. I thought that it does it pretty well. Uh, those smash zooms in Man of Steel and Star Trek Into Darkness did bother me because uh, they're really showy way to create the idea of a camera being there, but this movie is pretty smart about it. You mentioned sort of particles and and depth of field, and some of those particles do hit the camera, and there was maybe a little too much of that uh, for me. Um, but mostly I thought it was effective in making things feel uh, more real. And another another nice touch um, example of that is I read that they, uh, for this movie, wanted to make sure that all of the lighting was motivated by something that was going on in the scene. So, you know, if you're making a Pixar movie, you can just sort of brighten up this character without actually making sure that there's a lamp in the room shining on them. Um, But for this movie, they didn't want to do that. And I think that's one more reason. I suspect that's one more reason that they use that uh, sort of bioluminescent blood because it's just one extra light source, even if the creatures the creature and the robot are fighting out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the no- the ocean at night Forrest, let me stop you for just a minute there because it's time for a word from our sponsor the slate spoiler special is delighted to be sponsored by shutterstock.com with over 700,000 high quality video clips shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level for 30% off your new account go to shutterstock.com and use the offer code spoiler7 at shutterstock.com you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project whether it's a website, an advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. They source their video clips from around the world and put them at your fingertips, and they add 10,000 new clips a week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER7, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER7. We thank Shutterstock for their support. All right, Forrest, back to Pacific Rim. This is a pretty long movie, but in our roundabout way, I think we've kind of covered most of what we want to cover. Mm-hmm. We should talk a little bit about, about the ending, maybe, and also the question of whether the ending is setting up you know, any more Pacific right. Rims. Um, so so what, how does it all come so to their, a head? So their final plan to, to cancel the apocalypse, as uh, Idris Elba says in all oh, yeah. of the ads. I, I love his The marketing for this movie speech. is not very good, I think, because it's hard to convey all of the elaborate concepts 
in the world of the movie, which is such a big part of why it's fun. Yeah, the stuff that's interesting about it is all the stuff that wouldn't play well in a trailer, really. Yeah. The, the neural drift scenes, that would right. look completely incomprehensible. Yeah, you can't get that across in 30 seconds. Um, so their final plan is that they need to go down to the breach and and into the bridge, which is the thing sort of in the middle of the portal, and then nuke it so that the creatures can never get over again. And they haven't been able to figure out how to do that because every time they send a bomb down, it can't get in the door. But by drifting with the kaiju, they figure out that the door basically only unlocks if you, like, show your genetic signature. It's, it, like, wow, you followed this DNA. so much better than I did for it. <laughs> I would not have been crucial. able to. Yeah. I would not have been able to cite any of those details. I just knew they wanted to nuke the breach. And my question was, why didn't they just do it before? Okay, but now yeah, I'm getting. Yeah, so it. it is. Ex- it's explained in the movie, and so um, so they discover that they need a de- genetic signature. So in the middle of this big final battle with two giant robots and this time three kaiju, including a class five, because they're classified <laughs> like hurricanes and sometimes like predicted like earthquakes. It was really fun how they played with all of those different parallels. Um, uh, they have to. They realize they have to kill one of those creatures and sort of use it to swipe the key card in the door, the mm-hmm. genetic key card <laughs> in the door, and go into the breach. Um, but you know what happens is that uh, Idris Elba's character, plus the hotshot sort of the Aussie ice guy. man, arrogant type character in terms of Top Gun. Some of this stuff reminded me of Top he Gun. He is an ice man. You're right. Yeah. Um, they realize they're not going to be able to do it, so those guys blow themselves up to create a yes, diversion. Yes, Idris Elba and the Aussie sacrifice the creatures, And then they go in and self-destruct their old-school nuclear-powered robot to destroy the bridge for now. Right, but then, but then Rinko Kikuchi and Charlie Hunnam's characters are shot up back, to, back through yeah. the sea in, in pods, and they make it at the end, and we see them sort of snuggling on their pod. In the it's very, a very, very like, James shot. Bond kind of ending, right? I couldn't help but think of that. There are like five different James Bond movies that end up with like the hero and his girl, um, although you know the woman in this movie is much more than just a Bond girl, thankfully. Um, you know, surfacing and laying on a raft, and then they're like about to get it on is sort of the feeling I, that I got at the end of this movie. Right, right. And they're, and they're radioing to them, guys, are you there? And they're just sort of gazing yeah. into each other's eyes. Yeah. Oh, wait, we forgot to mention Clifton Collins Jr., who I thought was really good in so this very thankless well. role. He was basically the kind of air traffic controller, right? Mm-hmm. He was some kind of on-the-ground engineer who basically narrates to us what's going on while sitting behind all kinds of crazy three-dimensional computer screens. Clifton Collins Jr. is just this really, really cool actor who is always popping up in small character roles and things and never seems to get okay. like a, a lead role. He's like the Kevin Corrigan kind of figure. Yeah, I you recognized know, him, but around the edges. him. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some things he's been in recently. He was in Sunshine Cleaning and he was great in that. Okay. But yeah, he's, he's, just, he's always the extra guy. And he was sort of steampunk in this too. He was always walking around mm-hmm. in like tweed pants and a bow tie and he was awesome. All right. So is there anything else we want to say to, to wrap up? We're recommending this. Overall, right? Very highly. We're in the drift on this one. I don't know if I'm as high as you. I mean, I just, there was really a lot of Kablamo monster fighting and it was a little bit too long. I could have taken 20 minutes out of this movie happily or added 20 minutes about other stuff. The 12 year old and me definitely would have enjoyed this movie even more than I did now, but. I that twelve year old part of me still exists and totally came out watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's, my jaw dropped at least a couple times in a totally involuntary way, mm-hmm. where I only realized it after the fact, right. and that hasn't happened probably since Inception or Avatar. And the fact that a movie about this, about something that we feel like we've seen a lot of, which yeah. is big creatures battling it out in yeah. you know cities during the apocalypse, the fact that it could be made to feel this fresh is, mm-hmm. is pretty pretty impressive. I I, com- I commend 
del Toro in it. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe one thing we can talk about is how it, it manages to bring together all of these different somewhat familiar elements, but to put them together into this pastiche. So, you know, the name of the monsters is kaiju, which comes from, that's the name of the Japanese monster movie genre. I think it's kaiju. Like, Just kaiju, kaiju? Right? Okay. Uh, that's the name of the, man- the Japanese monster movie genre. In fact, the movie is dedicated to uh, Ishiro Honda, who directed the first Godzilla movie and, and several others, and Ray Harryhausen, who you know sadly just died back in, in May. Uh, so it has those elements. It has the giant... Um, uh, the Jaegers, which come from primarily, I think, from these mecha anime movies. There's the sort of Top Gun element. Um, what else is in there? There's a lot of video game kind of elements, I think, uh, in terms of how they control the uh, the creatures. Feels very much like a video game to me. I mean, I saw some Blade Runner in there, but I mm-hmm. guess you could say that Blade Runner has, has influenced the design of practically every science fiction movie right. since it was made. But the way Hong Kong looks with the you know kind of layering of different cultural kind of signifiers and the way that the bones the bones of the kaiju are used as these like architectural elements in the city yeah. there's like a, a I guess a cult that worships the kaiju and they right. they build their chapel out of the rib cage and that stuff was all just wildly imaginative and cool yeah and they have those uh, tiny sort of skin parasites or at least they're tiny compared to the kaiju but they're actually you know the size of Dobermans or something. <laughs> yeah, these giant it's, ticks. It's a yeah, funny skill. There's joke a lot too. Of, of that kind of stuff. And again, if you liked Hellboy and the scene in Hellboy where they go under the bridge and there's all these kind of bizarre creatures yeah. from you know of different body types, that that stuff is all over the place here too. It's funny. I read that the way that they chose all of the monsters is that they basically so Del Toro brought a bunch of these sort of top creature designers together in his creature lab, and then they set up what was described, uh, what they described as a monster American Idol. Where I guess it was like some sort of like a tournament uh, where they determined which one was basically a combination of the scariest and the most sort of original. They didn't want each monster to look like, you know, they didn't want one to be a homage to Godzilla and another to just look like a T-Rex or, or anything like that. I hope they filmed all that and that there'll be a feature I, yeah, on Yeah, that would be great. I want to see the bracket. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming in to spoil Pacific Rim with me. Let's do another scene. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.